From the time Jesus began to show his disciples that he had to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and legal experts, and that he had to be killed and raised on the third day. Then Peter took hold of Jesus and, scolding him, began to correct him. God forbid, Lord, this won't happen to you. But he turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stone that could make, t- me, could make me stumble, for you are not thinking of God's thoughts, but human thoughts. Then Jesus said to his disciples, All who want to come after me must say to them, no to themselves, take up their cross and follow me. All who want to save their lives will lose them, but all, who's, all who lose their lives because of me will find them. Why would people gain the whole world but lose their lives? What will people give in exchange for their lives? For the Son of Man is about to come with the majesty of his Father with his angels, and then he will repay each one for what that person has done. I assure you that some standing here won't die before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Rachel. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples he had to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and legal experts, and that he had to be killed and raised on the third day. Jesus' campaign as Savior and Messiah really takes a dark turn. Suffering, murder, the resurrection. Wait, what? That's the plan? That's God's plan? The plan is to be persecuted, like real deal persecuted, not the sort of made-up persecution that's handy for getting you voted into office or useful for getting people on your side, but like arrested, stripped down, and hung outside of the city gates where the garbage was taken out, kind of persecuted. That kind of persecuted. Oh, the irony of someone who is called the Son of Man, like the quintessential human being, would have his human life ended in such a dehumanizing way. Jesus is making it known, making it well known that in his sort of kingdom, suffering is the way. Suffering is the way and not the detour. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of the heavens. Then you have Peter and the guys Always pay attention to Peter. He's almost always some sort of stand-in for us, the church. He's the rock on which the church is built and normally does the exact thing we might do if faced with a Christ we can't control and don't always understand. Sometimes Peter gets it right. After all, he's the one that jumps out of the boat to be with Jesus. After all, he had the right words, Lord, save me, and truly you are the Son of God. In our story, just right before our passage today, Peter gets the keys to the kingdom. So he's certainly invested in the welfare and the sustainability of this endeavor. In crude terms, 
he's the one who's been given a house plan and entrusted to make it bloom. And so the first time he sees it beginning to wilt, it's really threatening to his whole calling. He has just one job. So Peter consults against Jesus's self-dooming political message of humiliation, suffering, and death. He tries to talk Jesus out of this crazy talk. Suffering and death can't be part of the plan. They have to be the roadblock. God forbid, Lord, this won't happen to you. He's doing that hopeful friend thing where you like hide your opinion inside of hope uh, when, when you're consulting a friend or when they're having a problem. But Jesus like claps back at him and says, get behind me, Satan, you're a stumbling stone. I think that's maybe clever wordplay on Simon's new name, Peter, which means rock. Jesus may have, may have reacted so strongly because maybe he was flashing back to the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. When they, our ancestors, chose to listen to the Satan serpent who confused them and convinced them that they might know better than God. That in the midst of a verdant garden where they could have everything, the one thing off limits to them was the only thing they thought they still needed. When in all truth, every need they could possibly have was already being met in their communion with the God who they walked with in the cool of the day. Or maybe Jesus was like triggered by the post-trauma of his own testing in the wilderness. Where... He was hungry and weak after not eating or drinking for 40 days. And Satan propositioned him, tried to convince him that he was incomplete and needed something else to alleviate his own suffering and the suffering of others. Uh, I recommend this brilliant little book by uh, Henry Mallon on In the Name of Jesus. Um, it's, it's maybe even like a perfect book for times like these of aloneness and isolation and desert wandering. He, in the book, he, it's just kind of organized around the three tests that Jesus faces in this wilderness temptation. And he frames them as the temptation to be relevant, to be spectacular, and to be powerful. Well, you and I might not have ever done a 40-day fast or never been talked to by Satan, uh, I think these um, temptations come up for each of us in our own very specific ways to be relevant, spectacular, and powerful. And I really like how now and helpfully offers some spiritual practices to help us counter these false narratives, things like contemplative prayer, confession, theological reflection. I must admit in my own journey with Jesus that I haven't had a ton of acute suffering. It always makes me a little nervous. It makes me kind of wonder if I'm doing it right or if I'm avoiding the way of Jesus in ways that are conscious to me, but also in some that are more subtle and maybe unknown to me. Maybe that's a good guiding prayer for us this week. Something to ask Jesus. Lord, where am I avoiding suffering and therefore avoiding you? Maybe something to consider. Where am I creating a buffer in my life so that I can 
control just how much suffering makes its way to my doorstep. Perhaps in this time that we're in of dual pandemics, maybe it's been eye-opening to you and has put you face-to-face with a level of suffering that you previously wouldn't have um, known or been aware of or that maybe that you've been numb to. And if you don't have the stamina built up to think about these things 24-7, I don't blame you. It can all be really overwhelming. But don't stop just because it hurts. Suffering is the way, not the detour in God's kingdom. It's not a distraction. Nothing is wrong. Suffering is the way, not the detour. Most of us are taught somewhere along the line that suffering is good feedback. When you start to feel it, stop because you're doing it wrong. Our bodies have this like built-in sensor. When our hand starts to burn, we move it away from the stovetop. This makes sense. God has designed it in these ways. But Jesus starts to show his disciples and us that the kingdom is built a little bit different. When you are with Jesus, suffering and even death isn't something going wrong. It's actually just... It's actually just exactly what it's like to resist a world in which sin and death attack righteousness. Jesus is leading a movement to root out the cancer of sin and bring healing, and oftentimes that involves quite a bit of suffering. So while suffering is not the goal, it certainly can be a byproduct of being part of the cure of being with Jesus. Soon Chan Ra and Mark Charles are wise guides in this, and they tell us that Jesus gives his disciples a new barometer. We, we might figure, figure this as a new barometer. They say, whereas when God's people's faithfulness used to be measured by prosperity and flourishing in the promised land, they say, now Jesus is telling his disciples that persecution, suffering, and even death will not only be his fate, but will also be the fate of anyone who seeks to follow him. Their discipleship is not to be gauged by their wealth, their power, or their prosperity here on earth. They will, they will know that they are following Jesus correctly when they are rejected insulted and even persecuted just like Jesus and the prophets before them. This is, this is the logic of the kingdom that when you are, that the only way to become like Jesus is to be with Jesus. And then you will share in many of the same things that Jesus shares in both his sufferings and his glory. Stanley Harawas um, talks about the church and, and Peter uh, as a, as a fill in talks about us. He says, it's not Peter's task to make the church a safe and secure place or to try to ensure its existence. Rather, it is Peter's task to keep the church true to its mission, which is to witness to the Messiah. And suffering is the, is the look and the feel, the aesthetic of the Messiah, the suffering servant. Right now, though, I want to take a little sidebar um, from our passage because uh, something kind of weird happens here and we all kind of perk up. Uh, Jesus calls out 
Peter. And it's really brutal and it's kind of surprising that, Je that Jesus would call Peter Satan, especially like we know Peter to be, he always was really important and he remains really important in the gospel story and in our lineage as people of faith, as the church. And so for, for Jesus to call Peter Satan, to say, get behind me, Satan, is a pretty major moment in the gospels. And for me, the sidebar is that intramural, like in-house call outs are a thing for Jesus. Like they happen and it's okay. Um, we might consider this like on the surface as like this brutal, like cancel culture moment of the New Testament. This is not an endorsement for cancel culture, but the only thing is that Jesus tells the truth, but he doesn't cancel Peter. These days we assume that if you say something like that, you've automatically and permanently aligned yourself against someone or that you've written them off as too far gone. But Jesus has this amazing knack for maintaining focus and bringing about unity, for drawing people close to him, but dispelling the false uh, concepts they have about him or the ways that, they, uh, that their sin taints their ability to follow him. Maybe that should be a guide for us in these polarizing times. Maybe that might encourage us to bear witness with deep conviction, but also to do so in a way that, that doesn't flex some sort of muscle of moral superiority over someone. I can't help but think uh, in just in this last week where our vice president's distortion of Hebrews 12, in which we were entreated um, uh, to let us run the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on old glory. And this was like, man, this was like uh, feeding frenzy, at least for the circles that I'm around. It's always fun when a line like this comes out and like to see like NPR commentators who never talk about religion, like look like they're at a VBS sword drill trying to figure out where that passage is from. And I'll admit a great personal tendency on these occasions to see this line as a gotcha moment, like where I can smugly like call out syncretistic patriotic God and country faith from the comfort of my own couch and like fire off some breathtakingly witty tweets and retweets and never really examine how we got here and how I do the same thing. Jesus is necessarily quicker to the draw than we ever could be because he's not plagued by the same sort of div dividedness or distorted allegiances. Jesus is solely pledged his allegiance to the Father. But also just because we're not perfect and our allegiances are askew doesn't mean, and just because we don't perfectly love God doesn't mean we can't call a spade a spade and call blasphemy blasphemy. Just don't stop there. Return to the actual word of God. I, I would imagine Jesus would have a pretty stern call out for that distortion, but would also uh, likely go back to God's word as a counter. So I'll remind you, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a cloud of great witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes not on the flag, not even on the cross, but let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And this ties in with Jesus' lesson to Peter. 
who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's meditate on that this week. So Jesus gives us the bracing news. He says, all who want to come after me must say no to themselves. Take up their cross and follow me. All who want to save their lives must lose them. But all who lose their lives because of me will find them. Feels like we need to be totally rewired. You see, whether or not you and I are actual products of evangelical presentations of the gospel, like the four spiritual laws, we all have them like imprinted in our bones and in our spirits in maybe unhelpful ways. Like you may have heard the, the first law and the most famous line that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. I think we all just have that like imprinted into us. God loves us and has a wonderful plan for our life, which on the surface is so true and is such good news. But in love is so essential to God's being that scripture actually attests that God is love, not just that God loves, but God is love, full stop. And God's love does indeed plan ahead for us, gives us an inheritance and a hope which doesn't disappoint, good so far. But then how do we account for suffering if God loves us? and has a wonderful plan for our lives. How do we account for Jesus's suffering? The one who God said, you're my beloved son, uh, whom I love and in whom I'm well pleased. How do we account for the cross? Jesus was, or uh, uh, not Jesus this time. Uh, Flannery O'Connor was talking about people outside of Christian faith and how they view faith as like, fluffy and sentimental, but I think she also nails the difficulty for those of us who do believe but buffer ourselves from suffering. She said, what most people don't realize is how much religion costs. They think faith is a big electric blanket, something that'll keep us warm and cozy, and she says, when of course it is the cross. So yes, with the great cloud of witnesses before us and around us, I can affirm that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, which of course is the cross. God loves you and has a cross planned for your life. This is the way it's been since Jesus. This is the way it still is. This is the way it was for the 21 Egyptian Coptic believers whose wonderful plan included being kidnapped from Libya and being beheaded for not recanting their faith in Jesus. This was like Diedrich Bonhoeffer, whose wonderful plan included death in a Nazi camp just months before the end of World War II. Or like MLK, whose wonderful plan for his life included slander and dogs and fire hoses and prison and being shot at the Lorraine Motel. Or like Brother Roger, the founder of Tizay Community, whose wonderful plan included being stabbed by one of the pilgrims he'd opened his life and community and hospitality to. Or like Edith Stein, whose wonderful plan included leaving academia and becoming a nun who would die in the gas chambers for her empathy and care for the Jews of her own heritage in Nazi Germany. 
were like Oscar Romero, whose wonderful plan included being murdered while celebrating the Eucharist. His body being broken and his blood being poured out while breaking it and pouring out the body and blood of Christ for the poor in his Salvadorian congregation. Or like the Charleston Nine, whose wonderful plan included being gunned down by a white supremacist after welcoming him and studying the Bible with him for hours in their fellowship. What if each of these witnesses, this great cloud of witnesses, is showing us the norm for discipleship, not the outlier. The norm for what it means to join Christ in suffering and death. What if each hadn't really planned this out, weren't really seeking some sort of glorious martyrdom, but they were just being close to Jesus and taking the next step on their journey with him. And it was a journey that inevitably led each of them to suffering and death, but also to joy and resurrection. What if we had our eyes open this week to the ways that we're called not to avoid or turn away, but to face suffering as part and parcel of our faith? We all have a choice, a choice this week to avoid suffering at all costs or to join Jesus in the way of suffering, in the way of the king in the kingdom. This week, I I read a little essay by writer Zadie Smith from a series of essays that she wrote uh, during and about the pandemic. And the title of the essay is Suffering Like Mel Gibson. And she's referencing a meme featuring Mel Gibson sitting next to Jim Caviezel, who played Jesus in The Passion of the Christ. And their appearances are pretty stark. here, um, and the, the, why the meme's funny is because it'll be like me explaining uh, to Jesus how hard it is to homeschool my kids or something like that, right? Um, but the point is, of her essay is that in times of great suffering, we, we often have a problem uh, comparing our suffering to others, either maximizing it against their minimal suffering or minimizing our suffering against their really hard suffering. And, and, and she's making the point that not to pay attention to our own suffering, i.e. Mel Gibson's relatively weak suffering, because others everywhere are suffering more is, is, is a problem in and of itself for us. There's some truth to this, but I love how she opens up space for our own encounters with suffering, however mild in the grand scheme of things or however serious they are to us at the moment. She opens up space for them to generate a kind of humility and a kind of empathy towards the suffering of others. And we can join with others in their suffering, no matter how how real or how uh, pitiful it might seem. That suffering in Christ creates some sort of fellowship. That suffering might breed empathy for others, whether their suffering is enormous or silly. So at the end of the essay, she concludes by saying, but when when the bad day in your week finally arrives and it comes to all, by which I mean that particular moment when your sufferings, as puny as they may be in the wider scheme of things, direct themselves absolutely and only to you as if precisely designed to destroy you and only you, at that moment, it might be worth allowing yourself 
the admission of the reality of suffering. If not for yourself exactly, then in preparation for the next painful bout of video conferencing so you don't roll your eyes or laugh or puke while listening to what some other person seems to think is pain. Jesus is calling us into suffering, has suffered more than we'll ever know, and also opens up our ability to connect with others in their suffering, whether it's more or less. There's no suffering Olympics. There's just suffering with and in Christ for others. This connects for me so closely with the fellowship in suffering uh, that Philippians 3 describes. And this is, this is where we'll end uh, for today's sermon. So if you'll, if you'll hear this word from Paul, who's writing from prison to the Philippian community, who is also experiencing suffering, he says, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection, and this should be underlined, but participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Can you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for opening up this new way of thinking and being, this uh, way of the cross, this way of suffering, this way in which we follow you and walk with you and join with you, this way that you are so joined with us in the um, seemingly small sufferings of doing school from home or being away from our friends or um, not getting to, to do some of the things that we look forward to or rely on. Those are still sufferings and they are still found in you and in the cross. Lord, make us brave and courageous to encounter um, even greater sufferings, things that we avoid, ways that we distance ourselves or grow our hearts that we might love who you love and how you love with intensity and with uh, proximity to those who are in the most pain. Lord, shape our hearts this week that we um, might see suffering not as a good but as a necessary place where our faith is grown in you. I pray all this in the name of Jesus, the suffering servant. Amen.